So we are celebrating Advent, and this is our second week uh, of an Advent sermon series. And Advent traditionally is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's a time of preparation, but even more important than that, even more important than the tradition, Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming. It's about the coming of Christ. So more than anything, it's a time of year where we reflect on the coming of Christ. And so this year, for the sermon series, we are exploring the question, why did he come? Why he came? And there's all sorts of verses throughout the New Testament um, that say something like, for this reason, Jesus came. Or Jesus came so... Or Jesus came in order that. There's several, over a dozen of those verses in the New Testament. And we've chosen four. Four different angles, four overlapping themes of why Jesus came. And so last week, Pastor Ralph walked us through the passage that says, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And today we'll be exploring the theme of adoption. Jesus came that we might receive... Adoption. So for the last two Christmas seasons, um, I've done a spoken word. Actually, I don't know if I'm quite hip enough for it to be called a spoken word. I am from Iowa, so you could call it a poem. It's something. It's spoken word or a poem. So I thought, you know what? Oftentimes Christmas is a time of tradition, so let's make it a tradition, and I'll do it again. Three times is a tradition. And so I wrote a spoken poem on the theme of adoption. And um, I don't have much personal experience with adoption, but it's based on a true story. And I, I didn't just randomly look it up on the internet. It's someone that an older friend of mine met, a pastor friend of mine. And um, he shared this story in a sermon. And he was, he was teaching a class uh, a few years ago, and they were talking about adoption. And he, he asked the students, older students, uh, to raise, raise your hand if, if you have personal experience with adoption. And, and a young lady raised her hand. And um, they got to hear her story later that week, that she, uh, she was Bulgarian and grew up in an orphanage in Bulgaria, but that it could hardly be called an orphanage. Uh, the, the circumstances were just very, very negligent. And um, she was basically ignored for her upbringing, and she was even abused by the older boys at the orphanage, just tossed around. And one morning, she woke up, and the management came to her and, and um, gave her a shower and put a dress on her. She did not know what was going on. And um, they brought her to this lobby, and there was this couple there that met her and welcomed her. They didn't speak the same language yet, but she said they seemed nice enough, so she went with them and got in the car and drove away from the orphanage, got in the plane, drove to the States, or flew to the States, and uh, got to this couple's home. And they brought her in and got her ready for bed like, uh, like, like parents tenderly would. And she says, she especially remembers that they gave her a brand new pair of pajamas, and that was a big deal. And um, somehow... Even though there was a language barrier, 
somehow they were able to communicate to her, look her in the eyes and say, from this day on, you can call me daddy and you can call me mommy. And she, I'm already emotional. So she, so she went to bed that night just with this overwhelming sense. She All of a sudden she got it. She's like, whoa, I've been chosen. I have an actual family. And uh, it was beyond something I know that I, more than I have personally experienced on earth. And so this uh, spoken word, this poem, is inspired by her story. What? You say, I'm adopted now? And from here on out, things will be different somehow. My head spins, my heart pounds, voices are whirling. I just hear the sounds. True, I'm a little confused, not quite sure what to do, but I'm glad to leave this place with you. In the rear view, that place grows more dim, but I'll never forget living within those walls, those walls which confined me, those walls which defined me, those walls which I couldn't escape for anything, those walls which could tell of all my silent suffering. You see, the place that I've been living felt less like a home and more like a prison. I never felt like a child, always put to work. I had to earn my keep. I never knew my worth, abused and hurt, treated like dirt, like the lowest on earth. That's how I would have described my whole life up until the day you arrived. The day you arrived and looked me in the eyes and I began to realize that I was no longer alone and I had found a home or a home had found me And that's the way it would be permanently, indefinitely, finally. Finally, I'm beginning to see as you show me patiently what it truly means to unlearn the old untrue things and embrace new lessons such as these. That if I'm your child, then I'm starting to learn your love is something I don't have to earn. I don't need to frantically keep you appeased. Never quite sure if you are pleased. No, because you are my father, you delight in me. And... If I'm your child, as you're so quick to say, then that is who I will always remain. You won't take me back or want an exchange. No matter how I did in the game, no matter who calls me a name, my identity stays the same. I'm your child, and that will not change. And if I'm your child, then I don't have to hoard, because I'm no longer unsure of what is in store like I was before. No, with you, my needs are secure. And if I'm your child, then to you I can call every time that I fall. Yes, it's cliche, but also crucial. And if I'm your child, then I can tell you my fears and not be ashamed of my tears that I've kept stuffed inside for years. And if I'm your child, then I'm adopted as your own. And at last, I can say three words. I am home. This morning, I want us to see that this young woman's story is somewhat related to our spiritual experience. We, too, are adopted. Adopted as God's children. It's one of the greatest themes of our salvation. In fact, one scholar put it this way. He says this, The notion that we are children of God, His own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. So this morning we'll be looking at a passage that shows us more about our adoption as God's children. 
It's one of the most famous passages on this theme. It's Galatians 4, 1 through 7 that we read earlier. And if you're not already there, I want to encourage you to, to find your way there. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Find it in a Bible, one of those that you open or find it in a phone. It's, if you can, it's always better to follow along. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. And we'll divide it this morning into three sections. The problem, the solution, and the result. So we'll begin with the first section, the problem, in verses 1 through 3. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verses 1 through 3. I mean that the heir... As long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So section one, Paul begins this section by using an analogy drawn from his time. It's about a wealthy estate. Um, you can think maybe a Greco-Roman version of Downton Abbey. Not that I'm into that. We tried, but then Blue Bloods won us back. Uh, so a Greco-Roman version of Downton Abbey. And the estate owner has a child who will one day inherit the whole thing. But one of the common practices during this time, or, or a practice during this time, and it might still even be a practice today, is sometimes... The child would start to inherit the estate before the father died. It, it could be the 15th birthday, the 20th birthday, whatever. They would begin to run the estate at that time. And by the way, it's a little bit scary to think of a 15-year-old running an estate. But I think kids probably got mature faster back then. Probably because they didn't have emojis or Lego movies. Anyway, 15, 20, whatever it was. They could start to inherit the estate. But Paul's point here is that before that date, before that time, that day, whatever it was, the child lived under certain restrictions. They couldn't make decisions just on their own. And so, for example, my oldest daughter, Zoe, is three years old. And she could not call up Chase Bank tomorrow and say, hey, Chase, uh, could you take some of the money in the checking account and transfer it to a separate savings account marked Zoe's Toys and Candy? She does not have that ability. But someday, if I were wealthy and I gave her an inheritance um, while I was still living, and she, she would have full access to what I own. She would have that kind of freedom. And that's Paul's point. Before that day, that time that was set, the child lives without full freedom. And in fact, it, it, there's more. At a, in a wealthy estate, the child was under guardians and managers every day. In other words, someone was telling them what to do every day. And they were without full freedom. And so Paul says in that way, they were similar to slaves during this time. And by the way, slaves during this time were, um, were actually paid and um, they could um, actually eventually have freedom. So it was a different system than, a ma than American slavery. Not that it was okay, 
And not that I'm endorsing it, but I just want us to know that it was different. So that when we hear these things, we're not reading American slavery into it. But regardless, the child and the slave during this time lived without full freedom. And someone was telling them what to do. But then Paul flips the script. He says, we were those children. Not in terms of age, but before a certain date occurred. We lived like those children. We were without full freedom. Someone or something was managing our lives, controlling our actions. In other words, we were living like slaves. The question is, to what? Verse 3 says, the elementary principles of the world. Before a certain date, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So now the question is, what does that mean? It's a really full expression, and there's a lot of talk about it, but it basically means the basic belief system of the world. The, the beliefs that the world runs on, that's, the, that's primarily what it means. And then it also means the spiritual powers behind those beliefs. The spiritual powers that kind of encourage and undergird those beliefs. The basic beliefs that our world operates by. And so now the question is, what are those beliefs? What did Paul have in mind? And I think the primary belief Paul has in mind is the idea that we can somehow do something to make ourselves right. That we can work through our own effort to somehow save ourselves. How do I know that? If you have a Bible open, skip down to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. This happens, this, this, uh, these verses are right after, immediately after our passage. We'll start right in the middle of verse 9. Notice it says this. Paul is saying, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Same expression. Whose slaves you want to be once more? Then he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Stop there. What does it mean to observe days and months and seasons and years? Paul is referring to religious practices that the Galatians were convinced they had to do in order to like, be real Christians. You see, the, the context of this whole book is that these false teachers had come into the church of Galatians and said, no, 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 no. It's not just faith that saves you. No, you have to do more if you really want to get in with God. There's more you need to do. So Paul is saying no. And so the elementary principles of this world that he has in mind is the idea that we have to do something to save ourselves. And here's another crazy thing. The Galatian church was pretty much half Jewish Christians and half Gentile Christians. And he says both of you with completely different backgrounds, were enslaved to this same idea. The Jewish Christians who had a background in trying to keep the Old Testament law, trying to do that in order to make themselves right, they were enslaved to that principle. But also, the Gentile Christians who had that background of, of Roman polytheism, they were just as enslaved to that idea. Like they had to do certain things, keep certain rituals, to keep the gods happy that they might be living a good life. So it's a principle that 
applies broadly to people with a religious background, to people who are polytheists and recognize multiple gods. And I also think it applies to people who don't have, a, have religion at all. Religion. We don't have belief in God at all. It's so deeply ingrained to our system that, that even, if, even if we don't have a belief in God at all, we still are driven by this desire to somehow make ourselves right. To get, if it's not from God, to get ultimate acceptance from somewhere. Or a sense of worth or rest in our hearts. Or a sense of belovedness. We believe that we have to do something to get that. I've got to get it for myself. For example, if my job is what I'm looking to to get my worth, then I will do whatever it takes to climb up the ladder. And if one of my superiors compliments me, my heart soars. It's the greatest day ever. But if someone criticizes me at work, look out. I will become overly defensive and maybe bitter and resentful and maybe even gossip about that person, verbally assassinating them to everybody else. And if I don't get that promotion or if I lose my job, I'm not just sad but despondent because you have to understand my worth is on the line. And if it's my relationships I'm looking to, whether romantic or not, to Give me that sense of acceptance, that sense of wholeness. Like, finally, if I just have this, then I will be at rest. If I'm looking to that, then I will become overly preoccupied by them. How can I present the right image? Do I have the right clothes? Am I beautiful? Am I lovable? And if it's my accomplishments... And I will do whatever it takes to achieve my goals, even at the cost of a lot of other important things. And if I fail, if I don't get that thing, then I won't just be sad, I will be ruined. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and pastors, uh, quotes a line from Chariots of Fire, the old movie, where one Olympic track runner says this. He says, at the beginning of the race... I will look down that track four feet wide and have ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And then he says, but will I? That's, that's the anxiety that eats at our hearts, but will I? And so we might be looking to a job or relationships, or accomplishments, or whatever, to justify our existence. But what happens when it falls apart? Our existence is no longer justified, and our worth plummets. And so then we do whatever it takes to avoid that. Got to work harder, got to try more, got to sacrifice more, got to do whatever I can to make myself beautiful or likable. I got to sacrifice more, I got to go, 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 do this, do that, do this, do that, and that is the cycle that enslaves us. Whether we're religious, trying to make ourselves right by our own efforts through the eyes of God, or whether we're polytheists or or no religion at all. Paul says that is what enslaves us. The problem, the problem in the first section is this, captivity to self-salvation. 
And so far, you might be like, this is really turning out to be an uplifting Christmas message. Your beliefs will eat you alive. But there's more. You see, the problem is captivity to self-salvation. That's what Paul says, enslaves us before a certain date. But then what happens? That's the solution we find in verses 4 and 5. Let's read. Verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says we were living without freedom. We were captivated by self-salvation before a certain date. But then what happened? Christmas happened. The first Christmas happened. The fullness of time came. The date set by the Father and God sent his Son into the world. Born under a woman. Born under the law. Jesus came. Why did he come? Verse 2 says two things. To redeem those who are under the law. To redeem us. And redeem is a word that essentially means to set free. So we were enslaved, but Jesus came to set us free. How? By doing what we could not do. See, we were trying to be right before God, but he actually did it. He lived a life that was perfectly right before God. And then at the cross, he offered us this beautiful exchange. He would take the ways that we failed, the ways that we were not right before God, our, our sins, and offer us his status as right before God. That's why he died on the cross. He was taking the penalty for our wrongness and giving us instead, offering us instead, his rightness. Or as the Bible puts it, his righteousness. And he rose again to prove that this was not just some sales gimmick of a self-proclaimed Messiah, but this was the real thing. And now by faith, we can be right before God. That is how we can be set free. How, how does that work out? Because I no longer, when this is true, I no longer have to try to make myself right before God. I no longer have to try to do something to give that ultimate sense of being right, whatever it is. It's already been done for me. It's a gift. It's a gift offered to me. It never changes. It doesn't go up and down based on my feelings or based on my performance. It's already done. And when we know that that is true, we are liberated. We are freed to be great workers if we work, but not obsessive ones. We are freed to be loving in relationships, but not consumed by them. We are free to be driven by excellence, but not living for accomplishments. Because we no longer have to cling to these things as if our lives depended on them. We have already been rescued. We are no longer trying to justify our existence. It has already been justified. We have already been given the ultimate sense of acceptance, worth, and belovedness that our hearts long for. Do you know what that is? That is freedom. And yes, we will still struggle with the elementary principles of this world, especially trying to save ourselves. It's ingrained in our system. But the difference is we have been liberated to walk away. 
We have been liberated to say, no, my worth is not in that. It has already been given to me at the cross and walk away. You know what that is? That is freedom. (laughs) We were enslaved until a certain date. The coming of Christ. The coming of Christ. Christmas. And also the coming of Christ into our hearts through faith. He came to set us free. He came to redeem us. But verse 5 continues. It doesn't stop there. We are set free. And then verse 5 goes on. So that we might receive adoption as sons. He not only came to release us from slavery, but to make us God's children. You see, he doesn't just free us and then leave us on our own. He frees us and then adopts us as his own. And so that means we are given this intimate relationship with God. I think of the the story of the prodigal son. Probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told. It's It's about a son who was given an inheritance ahead of time and squandered it all and was left with nothing and deeply insulted his father, his father who represents God in this story. And he says to himself, I'll come and make myself one of his hired workers. Got this speech prepared in his mind. Goes back to the father. And before he can even say anything, his father embraces him and calls him his son. You see, sometimes we have that mentality. Sometimes we think, sometimes we think that we shouldn't be God's children, but God's worker only. But by faith in Jesus Christ, God calls us his children, not just his workers, his children. It's an intimate relationship. And there's more. We also have to think, how? How did we become adopted? We became adopted because essentially we exchanged places with Jesus, God's son. Or to put it another way, his perfect sonship before God was transferred to us. So our adoption means also that we are treated by God the way his son deserves. We are treated the way Jesus deserves. God looks at us as if we lived the life of his perfect son. He looks at us and sees everything good about his son, Jesus. And that is just astonishing. Sometimes we, uh, we think of forgiveness like being in a courtroom. And the judge slams down the gavel. Boom. Uh, your record is pardoned. You're free to go. Everything's expunged. And that's true. But I think actually the biblical story tells more. See, oftentimes we think of the judge as a neutral third party. But in this situation, it was the judge. The judge was the one against whom this crime was committed. He was the one offended. You know, in our day and age, that wouldn't fly. Because we would assume the judge would be biased against the person who committed the crime, but not not God. The person who committed a crime against him stands before him. And he, and he doesn't just say, boom, you're forgiven, you can go. He says, I myself will pay the penalty 
for all of your crimes. I will give everything to personally pay for what you've done to me at the highest cost. It cost him dearly. And he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, okay, you're released. He says, not only that, but I will take you into my home. I've already prepared a place for you. I will call you my child. I will take care of you. Not only that, you can have my criminal record. You can have my accomplishments. You can have my attention. If you want to talk, I'm always available to you. Yes, you will still have issues, but we can work them out. And you no longer have to call me judge so-and-so. You can call me father. Isn't that amazing? I can't think of any other equivalent to a love like that in our world or throughout history and all the, all the major belief systems out there. I can't think of a love like that. He doesn't just forgive us. He takes the penalty himself. And then he says, oh, I want you to be my child also. It's like First John 3, 1 says. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That is what we are. So we were enslaved. But Jesus came to set us free and make us God's children. The problem, the captivity of salvation, the solution, the coming of the Son. And now in verses 6 and 7, we find the results. Let's read. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So what's the result of our adoption? Verse 6 says, because you are sons. In other words, because you are adopted, the result of our adoption, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, and that spirit within cries out, Abba, Father. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes to help us experience to help us experience the reality of our adoption. It's not just a fact we know cognitively in our heads, but the Spirit drives it into our hearts. I am God's child. He is my Abba. What does it mean to call God Abba? Notice, much like Dada or Papa, Abba was one of the first words on the lips of an Aramaic-speaking child, meaning father, along with Ima, meaning mother. It was a term of endearment. It spoke of an intimate family relationship. And it was only used within a close family setting. So a father could be regarded as a, a highly regarded dignitary, but in his home with his children, he was Abba. So why Aramaic? Notice that Paul doesn't 
He's writing in Greek. He doesn't translate it into Greek. He's writing to Greek-speaking people. He doesn't translate it into Greek. He keeps it Aramaic, which is, by the way, why I don't think we should translate it into English. Daddy or Dada doesn't quite capture it. It's Abba. Why? Why? Because that's Aramaic is what Jesus spoke during his time on earth. And this is what Jesus called the Father. He called him Abba, an intimate family name. And this was unbelievable. No one had ever dared to call God that. Not throughout the entire Old Testament. Not even in the Jewish writings that we know of outside of the Old Testament. No one had ever dared to do this. But then Jesus comes and calls God Abba. An intimate family expression for Father. But then you might think, okay, yeah, but, you know, that's Jesus. The eternally existing Son of God who had a perfect relationship with the Father. But then it gets even more unbelievable. He turns to us and says, you, you can call him Abba. This is incredible. I don't think we understand the gravity of it. Ancient Jewish people would not even voice the name of God. They would not even fully write it. And Jesus comes, calls God Abba, and says, you can too. You can use the intimate family name. One writer tried to recreate the atmosphere in the early church as the congregation is instructed to call God Abba. So in this scenario, the the pastor starts out by speaking to the congregation. He says, Bearing in mind the the permission granted us by the Lord, we are so bold to say, then he pauses and takes a breath, Abba. He winces while everyone, and he pauses while everyone winces. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Then the writer goes on, this must have been a moment of climax and tension in the early worship service. A moment when believers experienced their sonship feeling that God was drawing them into an almost frightening intimacy. So what's the application for us? It's easy. I think God intended for us to call him Abba regularly in our spiritual lives. Not something, not a term we have to use all the time, but I think he intended for us to call him Abba regularly. We often talk about walking in step with the Spirit. And I think this is one way we walk in step with the Spirit. We align our hearts with the cry of the Spirit. It reminds us of the intimate relationship we have with the Father. Earlier this week, uh, both, both my girls were sick. And so I was watching them one morning. And Zoe was upstairs sleeping. And so I was holding Hazel. And uh, she began to lay her head on my shoulder. And it was actually my birthday. And so I said, you know what? This is a gift. The ability to be a father is a gift. And I'm so grateful. So you know what? It's my birthday. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to soak it up. And so I just started to speak my love to her. And then she perked up her head and started saying, da, 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 da. And it was probably... Um, babble, but 
I mean, she's not quite at the age where she like can associate words and people, but even so, it was a sweet, sweet moment between a father and his child. It, it's something about it created an intimacy. There's something about calling God Abba that reminds us of our intimate relationship with him. And some days, some years, some seasons, we really need that reminder. We need to remember how close we've been brought to him. We need to remember that we're not praying to some far-off, uncaring God. We need to remember that we don't have to get like the formula exactly right for him to hear our prayers. We need to remember how close he is. We're praying to Abba. You know, this word occurs only three times in the New Testament here in Galatians and a parallel passage in Romans that basically says the same thing as this passage in Galatians. And the third time uttered by the lips of Jesus. Do you know when? In the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus, or as, as Jesus was facing the cross and all of his friends were about to abandon him, and literally the weight of the world was on his shoulders. He said, Abba. As N.T. Wright pointed out, it was in the context of suffering. And so here we are in the Christmas season, and for all of its glitz, I want to recognize that it can be a difficult season for a lot of us. Um, I know that statistically, there are more mental health crises in the Christmas season than any other time of year. It's a time when we feel especially maybe alone or we, we miss people or maybe we're disappointed. And so I just want to commend you that you have an Abba. You can say, Abba, help. Abba, you are with me. Abba, you are for me. Abba, I need you. How powerful it is and how necessary it is that we can call God Abba. So the problem, the captivity of our self-salvation, the solution, the coming of the Son, and the result, the cry of the Spirit, Abba. So I'll ask the band to come up. And uh, I want to I leave us with this final application. I want to encourage us to remind ourselves of our spiritual adoption throughout this Christmas season. You see, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive adoption. So what better time of the year to start living into this reality more. And I'd like to invite us to do that in two ways. Number one, to intentionally make some time to take advantage of the, of the access we have to God because we are his children. To carve out time to take advantage of our access to God. We often don't stumble into extra time these days. We have to make it. So I want to encourage you to make the time to spend with your Abba. And um, especially Christmas season, it can be so busy. And uh, we can be so distracted. And that's ironic because it's a time of year when we're reflecting on the coming of Jesus. 
And we can often get to the other side of the season, like with zero spiritual impact. So I just want to encourage us to take that time, to carve it out every day, 15 minutes, to spend time with God, and let that be a catalyst for the coming year, because we are his children. And then number two, like I've said before, but want to reiterate, I want to invite you to call God Abba from time to time. Again, what better season to start? It's because Jesus came that we can call God Abba. And for me, it's fine to say that in public. That's fine. But this, I think, really soars in private with God, one-on-one with God. And just simply call him Abba and remember how close we've been brought to him. I've started that as I've studied that this this week, and it's already helped me. And I want to encourage you specifically. Oscar, can you pull up that last slide? Here's how I want to specifically challenge you to take a few days or maybe even a few weeks to read 1 John 3, 1. Start out by reading that and then take some time to call God Abba. Because the fullness of time had come. A certain day arrived, the first Christmas day. Jesus came to set us free that we might receive adoption. This Christmas, let's remember the sheer wonder of that And I think it might be fitting to close in the same way that we began. You see, if I'm your child, then I'm starting to learn your love is something I don't have to earn. I don't need to frantically keep you appeased. Never quite sure if you are pleased because you're my father. You delight in me. And if I'm your child, as you're so quick to say, then that is who I will always remain. You won't take me back or want an exchange, no matter how I did in the game, no matter who calls me a name. My identity stays the same. I'm your child, and that will not change. And if I'm your child, then I don't have to hoard, because I'm no longer unsure of what is in store like I was before. No, with you, with you, my needs are secure. And if you're, I'm your child, then to you... I can call every time that I fall. Yes, it's cliche, but also crucial. And if I'm your child, then I can tell you my fears and not be ashamed of my tears that I kept stuffed inside for years. And if I'm your child, then I'm adopted as your own. And at last, I can say three words. I am home. Home is where God is. Home is being with our Abba. And because of Jesus, we can experience that now. And one day we will experience that fully. And that's what Advent is about. Jesus has come, and he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making it possible for us to be your children. If we don't know you that way, God, I pray that we would really see what Jesus has done for us and our need for that exchange. And even today, that we would receive the miracle of adoption, the wonder of adoption. And God, help us, Lord, help us to take advantage of the fact that because Jesus came on that first Christmas and because he comes into our hearts through faith, we are your children. In his name we pray, amen.